Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Cha Chan Deng's a part of our urban landscape, a cafe where I can genuinely use the phrase where East meets West, with a mix of both Chinese and international dishes and the quirky Hong Kong take on what international dishes can be interpreted as. These include milk tea and the very Hong Kong French toast. France's Haddon Cave recently set up the Cha Chan Teng, Mr S.Y. Punti, situated in David Lane in Saing Pun, near a foot massage business. I joined him there for a coffee and a chat about local cuisine and growing up and working in Hong Kong as the son of a senior government official. Well, what we're trying to do, one of the things that we try and do to distinguish ourselves from regular cha chan teng is that we make it a, a policy that we source as much as possible in terms of fresh food, but also in terms of locally sourced products that you can buy in the markets here in Saing Pun, yes. So not only fresh food from Saing Pun market, but also still in Saing Pun you get little shops that sell fresh noodles, uh, even chili sauce, uh, which is the Yukuan Yik brand, we buy locally. Uh, in fact, uh, this particular chili band was manufactured in the house next door to where the restaurant is. So there's that connection also with the locality. Yes, you're going very local. And what I was interested also with this chili sauce is it's uh, been, uh, well, if you say manufactured, certainly cooked in, in uh, Hong Kong since 1922. So there's a lot of heritage here. Now, are you a cook yourself? I'm not at all. The, the reason why... Well, I've always wanted to do something like this. It's a sort of uh, idiotic thing that uh, I suppose a lot of people want to do and usually lose huge amounts of money at. <laughs> uh, but in this particular case, we have decided to go ahead because we've rented this building partly to live in. We live in the first floor and we don't need the lower floor for living space. So the question is what to do with it. Uh, and so it seemed like a good idea at the time. So, uh, Francis Haddon Cave, are you still um, maintaining your career as a barrister at the same time? Uh, I'm still practicing as a barrister. So, this is, um, uh, I'm relying very much on Bibiana, my manager, to, to run the shop. But yes, I'm still practicing as a barrister. Now, I'll put some photos up on the RTHK website, but can you describe your Cha Chanteng to radio listeners? The Cha Chanteng is in an old building that was built in the 1950s. It's a two-story house. It, I think, was used on the ground floor as some kind of business. We're not sure what. And the first floor was used as a living space. So very much as the way we're using it now, I think it was originally used at that time. The building is at the end of a little lane of four little houses. And at the end of the lane, there's a very nice stone wall with a wall tree hanging over it, uh, which uh, shades the front of the restaurant. Yes, because you can sit here in, inside Mr. S.Y. Punty or outside uh, on the wooden tables. And as I say, you can also have a foot mas massage a little bit down the that lane, either correct. before or after your <laughs> cup of tea. <laughs> well, I haven't actually done that yet, nor has my <laughs> wife. Uh, but I suppose uh, some of our customers must have. Now, what is a? I mean, when we look at Cha Chan Teng, I say that term readily, uh, like a, you know, but um, what is it and where did it stem from in Hong Kong? Well, my understanding is that the, the Cha Chan Teng cuisine only arose in Hong Kong after the Second World War, when Hong Kong was obviously a much smaller place. And the main difference between then and now is that Hong Kong was a very poor place then. 
And if you wanted to eat Western cuisine, you were really restricted to the hotels, the big hotels, and maybe one or two uh, restaurants like uh, Jimmy's Kitchen, for example. But local people, you know, being Hong Kong people, were interested in trying new types of food. They couldn't afford the restaurants in the hotels, so they decided just to set up their own little places and try it out. And so you got this incredible array of different dishes based very loosely sometimes on uh, Western recipes uh, that became uh, the Cha Chan Teng style of food. And now it's much more of a mix. Uh, you, you do get Western dishes, but you, there's also a lot of Chinese food sold in these places. So you get basic noodles, uh, rice dishes uh, in Cha Chan Teng. And they, they, there's, a, there's a huge spectrum of the type of food that you can, you can uh, buy there, eat there. Uh, so that's Cha Chan Teng. It was originally uh, started because people wanted to try Western dishes, but couldn't afford it. And so that was the genesis of this uh, cuisine. So if we look back 60 years, what kind of uh, sort of quirky things might you have found in a Cha Chan Teng menu of that time? Well, I suppose one of the, the more famous ones is the, the so-called French toast, which is not pan-fried French toast as we might understand it in, in the UK, uh, but it was deep-fried and the other odd thing about it is that they've put peanut butter through the middle of it. So it's a bit like the Scottish deep-fried Mars bar. <laughs> you, know, you think about it and you think, no, that's not for me. But it's a sort of Moorish type of snack that you might want to eat. Something yes, it, I would recommend it. Yes, I've had it. It's, uh, and it's on your menu here. It's um, on our menu. But it's, uh, it's super sweet and it's certainly you know, a nice cholesterol boost. You might want to have a light salad after that exactly. for the rest of the day. Well, one of the things that we're going to try and do with our, with our French toast is we're going to try and put a little bit of Marmite in it with, with it as well. See, but I, I haven't received a lot of support from those that I've talked about that particular idea. But that's the whole thing about uh, Cha Chan Teng food. You try it. You, you, you give it a go. Even Hong, so-called Hong Kong-style tea. Again, this is not a traditional tea going back. It's not Chinese tea as such. It's, it's a take on Western tea. You know? It was milky, so they decided to make it more milky. Instead of using fresh milk, they used carnation milk to make it really smooth and sort of lots of little bubbles in it. They pour it through a stocking or some sort of net, and they've created their own version of a Western drink. Uh, and that's the interesting thing about Cha Chan Teng. You will experience something different if you go to any one of them, not just ours. It's true. I mean, I enjoy sometimes going into Cha Chan Teng because I might have some fish with spaghetti or, as you say, um, a coffee with condensed milk or a tea with condensed milk or these uh, white buns that you actually have crisscrossed oh, condensed right. milk uh, right. over the top. Now, what I was interested in here where we're sitting in Mr. S.Y. Punti at the end of uh, David Lane, I'm sitting here with Francis Haddon Cave, and uh, you've got a nice exposed uh, brick wall. You've also got very traditional tiles. We've got uh, teapots on the shelves. It's cool, it's got a fresh feel about it, um, and you've got some nice cool aircon running as well. So it's a, it's a little bit of a sophisticated cha chan tank. But your prices are very much um, street prices. So uh, what I was interested in is that you haven't Disney-fied it. Uh, that's correct. I, mean, I was very conscious of not doing that because I'm not one that is very attracted to thematic restaurants. 
you know, where you go to a restaurant uh, in a shopping mall and it's themed as um, Western cowboy-style restaurant. It's the sort of place you might take young kids uh, who want to play a bit. But in terms of enjoying a, an eating experience, uh, you want to go to a place that is connected to the place where you're eating. And so that's what I was trying to do with this particular place. I wanted it to be a cha chanteng, but I did not want it to be a cliché. I did not want it to be Disneyfied as you as you described it. Who's Mr. S.Y. Punti and his wife? Uh, well, Mr. S.Y. Punti is, um, is a figment of my imagination. Uh, but the reason for the name is that I'm a lawyer. I sometimes appear in, in the lower courts in Hong Kong. And if you ask a witness or a defendant uh, what language he wants to speak, you'll be told that he might want to speak Punti, uh, which is an anglicized uh, way of saying Bunde, which means local. So he would be wanting to speak Bundewa. And in English, when you're speaking English in the court, you'd describe it as Punti. He wants to speak Punti. Uh, so that's the So Cantonese? Or? It's Cantonese, yeah. Punti means Cantonese language. It does not mean Mandarin. And so Punti means local. In the courts, it means local language. So I was going to open a local restaurant. So in the Chinese name of the restaurant is Bunde Cha Chanteng. And it's Mr. S.Y. because S.Y.P. is for Saiyan Pun. Oh, very so, nice. So that's <laughs> a the, nice connection. That's the reason for the name. <laughs> but tell me about Mr. Punti's all-day breakfast. Mr. Punti's all-day breakfast. <laughs> Again, this is something going back to the tradition in Chatanteng where you, you look at a menu, you look at a recipe, and you try and fiddle with it. So this is supposed to be a Chatanteng. It's not Jasper's up the road. It's not a, a Western-style restaurant. But people will still, on a Sunday morning, want to come in and they'll want to have a breakfast and they don't want to be messed about. So we've got eggs in there, we've got our version of a sausage, which is a, a lap cheng, a Chinese sausage. Uh, so you get your, your protein there, you get your regular egg there, which you can choose which style you want. We have, instead of a carbohydrate a potato, we've got uh, rice cake, which has been lightly fried, uh, and a little bit of salad. And Mrs. Punty, I think, does drinks, doesn't she? <laughs> Mrs. Mrs. Punty does drinks. Mr. Punty is very much high on carbs, high on fat, enjoys his beer, but Mrs. Punty wants something a little bit more refined, so we've got some teas in there as well. In terms of, I mean, you've got a traditional cha-chan-tang menu in terms of, you know, wonton uh, and uh, dumplings of, of various sorts. You've got dried tofu. What are cloud ears? Those are those little black vegetables. You often see them in soups and uh, mix into fried rice sometimes, and we put them into our dumplings. They provide a certain texture. Now you've got some artisan coffees. You've also got a wide variety of teas. I do note a paucity of Russian borscht. Russian borscht uh, is a challenge that we haven't met yet, but uh, it will be on the menu at some point in the future. Yeah, the, you have maintained authentic chachanteng dishes here. You know, I've been interested to see before now in Central that they've actually done very pricey daipaidong equivalents, uh, you know, of dumplings, etc. But what we're ha seeing here is actually, um, you know, a real cha-chanteng, albeit with wine and beer. That's right. I mean, I went to England last year, and one of the places that just opened up, I think it opened up in June last year, was a, was a restaurant called cha-chanteng in Kingsway. And that is exactly what you described. It was a very, very high-end, very expensive place. 
that didn't look anything like a cha chanteng. The only thing that I could recognize on the menu that was anything like what you would find in a cha chanteng was in fact some French toast, the, the Hong Kong style French toast. But everything else was completely different. It looked more like a, a nightclub than a, than a cha chanteng. But the other thing is this area is basically a residential area. So people, if they're going to come here and eat, uh, unless you're a fine dining establishment, which we're not, they're going to be looking for something that's, that's at a reasonable price. Here in Saingpun, I mean, I just walked past the MTR station. There's a lot of changes going on, a lot of banging of, of construction. Do you feel that Chachantangs are disappearing, that they can't compete with the construction that's going on? Uh, no, certainly when you get these huge developments, so for example, these urban, what, what was it called, a URA, Urban Renovation Authority, or whatever, whatever it's called. They renewal. Renewal. Yes. Basically, they obliterate and then they rebuild, and then when the, the uh, shopping malls go in, the Chachantengs simply cannot survive. And anywhere Chachanteng is supposed to be on the street, you put it in a shopping mall, it's something completely different. It's just a restaurant. So redevelopment certainly has had an impact on Chachanteng, but the ones that survive, you still need restaurants on the street, have evolved, but they're still Chachanteng. They're still following that uh, idea that you take a recipe and you do what you like with it. If people like it, you keep making it. And that's Cha Chanteng. Your father, Philip Haddon Cave, was uh, financial secretary here, uh, followed by chief secretary. Um, so, are you a Hong Kong boy? Uh, very much so. I've, I've lived here since I was a young boy. I've, I've got married here, I've raised my children here, I've uh, followed my profession here, and I have no intention of leaving Hong Kong. So, yes, Hong Kong is my home. So as a young boy, I mean, what era are we talking? <laughs> Don't mind me being too private. I mean, what era were you growing up in Hong Kong? Uh, well, we came in 62. I was nine at the time. And I've been living here pretty well continuously since then, occasionally moving away to work. Uh, and obviously uh, for education, I was away in the UK uh, for school and university. Uh, but otherwise, here permanently uh, since that time. Can you remember at age nine in 1962 what your first impressions of Hong Kong were? Uh, when we first moved to Hong Kong, it was obviously a much smaller place. For example, you could drive down to Central and Park outside Prince's Building, which was the old building at the time. The landmark hadn't been redeveloped yet. You could go in and um, have a cup of tea at the, the old Gloucester Hotel, for example, uh, that was there. It was a much quieter South Sea community city. But it was a very bustling place. It, there was a lot of activity. There was a huge amount of construction going on. My main, in terms of my smell memories, my main memory of Hong Kong from that time was the smell of what wet concrete because wherever you went, there was construction going on and you could smell the concrete. So that's my historical <laughs> memory uh, of Hong Kong. And it was a wonderful place. You know, it, uh, we used to... My parents weren't rich at the time, and uh, we'd go off to, say, Big Wave Bay and spend the whole day down there, just sitting on the beach and playing in the waves. So I have lovely memories of uh, that time in Hong Kong. And my memories of the political events that took place in 67 and so on, I've got almost no memory of that at all, because I was away at school at the time. So it happened while I was away. Whereas my peers that were educated here have much sharper memories of what happened. But all that, so that, that history completely passed me by. I was completely unconscious of it. And when, so, <laughs> <laughs> so when did you return? Uh, well, I was away. So I, I never really left, um, but in those days, if you went away from, for school, you'd be away for 
many months at a time because transportation wasn't what it is now. You couldn't just fly there. And if you traveled by sea, of course, it would take a month. So if you went back to school, you might not come back to Hong Kong for nine months. Sometimes my mother would come back and stay with us, leaving my father here. So it was a different life. It wasn't like now you parents seem to fly across for a long weekend and fly back. That, that didn't happen at all. So while I was family was sort of based here, I spent a lot of time in England from 64 through to 75. I was away a lot at school and university. So when you came back in 1975, you're then, um, were you then looking for a career in Hong Kong? Um, I, well, not, I didn't have a career choice really in mind, but I joined a company. It was at a time when Hong Kong was beginning to open up, and I was playing with the idea of coming back here or staying in England. Eventually came back permanently in 79, in fact, and joined a company that was starting to invest in China in terms of garment manufacturing and property development and so on and that at a very small state. Uh, I was just a very junior person. I didn't do any of the important work. I just sort of hung around and did odd <laughs> bits. Uh, but it was at that stage uh, that um, I came back to work in Hong Kong. By the time you return in 1979, for starters, there's, a, there's going to be a huge growth in population. And uh, also you've got Deng Xiaoping looking to open up China. Um, so were you actually involved in the sort of Pearl River Delta stuff or were you more the clerk back in Hong Kong? I was more... They didn't dare let me out. <laughs> they'd afraid, they'd, they, they were afraid that I'd just get lost. <laughs> and then they'd have to answer to my father as to where the hell I was. Uh, but yes, I was basically um, in an office in Hong Kong. I, I wasn't travelling in China. But... Uh, our business was very much trying to set up these factories in China, which in those days was a bit of an adventure because in China they didn't know what to do with these these ideas, these prospects of setting up business. It was all completely new to them. They were recreating, they were, they were reinventing the wheel as far as um, normal economic activity was concerned at the time. Uh, so it was very exciting. It was all very new. And the garment industry at that time was leading the whole investment. Hong Kong, I think at the time, was the largest investor in China, bar none. The British, the Americans, the Japanese, all of them were um, secondary in terms of the total investment because it was all the returning uh, Shanghainese uh, textile industrials going back in. It was all the Cantonese using their connections in Guangdong province uh, to re-establish traditional biz businesses that they had. So it was a very interesting time. Was it simply a case of, you know, some of these garment factories had been in the new territories and they just went north, or was it a lot of new companies setting up as well? Mainly, I, I think the, the history of the garment industry in Hong Kong is that most of them originated in China, and then when the communists took over, they fled to Hong Kong and set up factories here at a time when Hong Kong labor costs were very low, dirt cheap, and we were competitive. And then once China began to open up after Deng Xiaoping came to power, uh, they then started to look seriously at going back into China because Hong Kong labor costs were increasingly high, Hong Kong land costs were increasingly high, and they either had to move their operations back into China or elsewhere. And given that they're all Chinese, the obvious place was to move back into China, which they did it on a you know, massively successful basis. 
1979, when you return from university, was this a, a sort of time of, you know, Greece, the film uh, flares, uh, or did, I mean, did the 1970s and early 1980s strike Hong Kong in that way? Uh, kind of. I mean, Hong Kong was a bit behind the curve, I think, really, to be quite honest. You could count on one hand the number of sort of nightclubs that you could go to. Uh, there were few and far between. And so there, was not, there wasn't nightlife as such unless you went to the captain's bar or somewhere, you know, like that. It was, there were a few other places. I can't remember what they were called now. There was one, um, the Go Down, for example, that started around that time, I think, and a few others on, on Kowloon's side. But in terms of there being um, a nightlife on the street for Westerners, it didn't really exist. It was restricted to homes and hotels and one or two bars and nightclubs. And then if you were that way inclined, you'd go down to Wan Chai, but uh, I wasn't. So what made you decide to change from garments to law? I started off in garments, and then I decided I wanted to start my own business. I started a trading business in the mid-'80s ran that until 97, sold that, and then studied the law. And I just, I decided I wasn't a very good businessman. So I decided I needed a profession. So I studied the law and, and became a member of the bar in Hong Kong. I obviously want to verify this with the younger son, but I understand from Wikipedia... <laughs> Oh, really? Philip Haddon Cave. I thought that was rather fun, considering that um, you've set up your own cha-chan-teng, that there was a line that he didn't particularly like Chinese food and that he would be at a Chinese banquet and he would insist on a steak. Well, it, it's, it's not, it's, I don't think it's quite fair to, to characterise it in that way. What happened is that when my parents first came to Hong Kong, of course, you come to Hong Kong, you go to Chinese banquets, you use Chinese food. And what happened very early on is that they went to one of these banquets. My father got really, really bad uh, food poisoning. And as a result of that, I mean, he was laid, you know, he was on his back for several days. And he, has a kind, he had a kind of allergic reaction to Chinese. Just the smell of the food would create a reaction in him. And he just couldn't do it. So it wasn't that he didn't like Chinese food, it's he had that experience and uh, couldn't eat it, basically. So he'd, he'd go along to a Chinese banquet subsequently, be very happy just to sit there and fiddle around. He was quite happy. But people would always insist. So it became a kind of tradition. You know, Philip Haddon K is coming to make sure he eats a steak make sure you make a big fuss about it <laughs> which he found really embarrassing they thought it was really amusing <laughs> oh poor man <laughs> from 1971 to 1981 your father's financial secretary then he's chief secretary from 1981 to 1985 were you able to make your own way or were you always the son of philip obviously if you are a young man at the time in hong kong your father's financial chief secretary uh, you will always be known as the son of uh, that uh, high official. But I didn't mind that because I was very proud of what my father did. And as a family in particular, my father, he was always extremely careful that it didn't become an embarrassment, not just to him but to the family. And if you're conscious of it, it, it was all right. But it is true, you know, if you, you, you couldn't avoid it. You had to accept it or leave Hong Kong. 
Uh, I remember once I was, when I was first came back to Hong Kong and I was trying to think what to do after joining the garment industry. And the thought that I had is I'd quite like to become a government officer myself. So I went to my father and I thought, what do you think of this idea? And he said, no. <laughs> and the reason he said no is that he was uh, financial secretary at the time and uh, he would not allow me to join the civil service, which might sound a bit harsh in these modern times, but it meant that there would be no embarrassment, there would be no conflict, and I respect him for being fairly harsh in his uh, decision at the time. I think I'd have enjoyed working for the government, but it was not for me. And he was very clear on these issues, always. I think it's absolutely fascinating that you've got I think it's also because I've been here a long time that you've got chilli sauce going back to 1922, that you step out onto the surrounding streets and you've got the noodle maker. Uh, now, the noodle maker that I see in Aberdeen, where I go through every day, is um, very well established. They're extremely popular, which also gives me hope that these, a lot of these establishments are actually probably having a far bigger turnover than I, than I think. I mean, how well established are they around Saingpun, or do they go back decades? I mean, the, the ones that you still see in, in Saingpun, the little shops selling their own noodles, are small businesses. They're not large operations. Even uh, Yukuan Yik, which, uh, which is this chili sauce here on the table, is a small business. They're well established in the sense that they have been here for many, many decades, and most of them started actually manufacturing their product in this area. Uh, most of them now do not produce in Saingpun. They've moved their manufacturing operations elsewhere uh, simply because of costs. Uh, but they've retained a small retail outlet to sell their product. So they're well established in that they've been around a long time. But I would not say that they were well established in the sense that they were big financial businesses that were highly profitable and were not under any threat at all. Any kind of redevelopment will wipe out their retail uh, outlets, for example, or if there's a change in the demographics of Hong Kong such that people are not interested in their old-fashioned products, uh, again, they will disappear. I mean, one of the products that we're trying to develop here is, for example, Chinese rice wine. And I found the name of the last rice wine manufacturer in Hong Kong, but I got there too late because they're already disappeared, you know. So these traditional businesses have not transited uh, very successfully, a lot of them. They've either become highly industrialized products like instant noodle type manufacturers, or Hong Kong tastes have moved on and are no longer interested in those traditional products like Chinese rice wine. You know, it's a very limited market in Hong Kong. Now your coffee also is, it's one of the, or the original maker of coffee in Hong Kong. That's right, it's, it glorifies it glories in the name of Olympia Greco-Egyptian Coffee Company Limited, which is a huge mouthful. But it started off in the 1920s when a Greek-Egyptian man came to Hong Kong. You know, he had obviously been Greek and Egyptian. He liked coffee. He liked Balkan Sobrani cigarettes. He liked tobacco. And so that's what he sold here. He had a little shop in the old China building, which I think was gone by the 90s. The old China building? Yes, uh, do you, you know China Building on Queen's Road and Pedder Street? In the old building before it was redeveloped, there was a little shop that was his shop. And he would sit in there, serve you 
cups of Turkish coffee and try and sell you pipes and tobacco. And I used to go in there with my father when he would go and buy his pipe tobacco. That family has passed away and they left the business to uh, their local staff and they've continued the business but only roasting coffee. And their only existing shop now is, and where they roast their beans is in Old Bailey Street. Uh, so we sell their brand because, again, it's an association with Old Hong Kong. It's a small business that I'd like to support. It happens to be very good coffee as well. They roast to our order. Uh, and it's proved to be reasonably popular. They're, they're, they're a good little company. It's worth uh, supporting them. My thanks to Francis Haddon Cave of Mr S.Y. Punti in David Lane in Sai Ying Pun. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>